Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. For while they were going to buy, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The power of this parable, as with in all scripture, is it only comes from fully understanding what is being said. And without an understanding of the context, our interpretations can go off the rails really quickly. And I have an illustration of this. I'm going to describe to you a movie that I think everyone has seen. And, you know, if you were here in the first service, no, no telling. It begins with a happy couple in their home talking about their kids. And almost immediately, an intruder breaks in, killing the wife and most of the kids, except for one who is left disabled for life. And now this widower is raising his last child by himself, and he's having a very tough time. He's always nervous. He's always concerned. He never lets his son leave his sight, really. And his fears are realized when someone kidnaps his boy. And to make matters worse, there's no ransom, and there's barely a clue as to where he's gone. Now, this, this one, he risks life and limb to find his son, crossing vast distances beyond the comfortable safety of the world he's known. And his only companion, his only help, has severe issues with her memory and focus. He doesn't know if she's helping or hurting more, depending on the time. And many times he runs into all kinds of obstacles that really are just content to kill him. And I bet if you're still trying to guess what movie I'm talking about, you think, well, maybe Liam Neeson stars in this. It sounds like an action movie. Actually, I just described the plot of Finding Nemo. So not what you expected, probably. And I hope that shows how easily our expectations can be wrong uh, when we talk about reality. And if it's wrong when I'm trying to describe a movie, that's silly, that's fine, whatever. But when Jesus is the one talking, we have to listen. We can't jump ahead of him. We can't assume we know what he's saying. We have to be like Mary who sat at his feet and listened to him. And in this passage, in this moment, he is teaching concerning his second coming, when he will return in the last days leading up to that. And if you look up the page or scroll up 
Matthew 24, verse 3, we kind of have the opening to this section. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He'd given some warnings already, and this passage itself is another warning, using the illustration of a wedding. And right away, don't let your idea of what a wedding is get into what Jesus is talking about here, because it's a very different thing. In Israel, in this culture, at that time, weddings really focused on three, had three parts, and it could take years to get from part one to part two to part three. The first part, the engagement, is where the parents kind of get together and say, well, yes, I guess that our son and your daughter could, could be married. I think that that would work out. And shortly following that, there's the betrothal, where they actually agree, yes, we're going to marry each other. And before friends and family, they commit themselves to each other. There's vows, there's, there's covenants, it's kind of like what you would imagine as a wedding, that part. And they're officially married. If that union was broken, that was a divorce. If the husband died, the wife was a widow. But they don't go off on a honeymoon yet. They don't consummate the marriage at this point. Because there's a third part of the wedding, the celebration. And that doesn't happen until the man goes off and he prepares a place to start his life with her so that they can have a life together. And it could take him up to a year to do so. And once he has this home ready, he goes to her. He goes back to get her. He takes his groomsmen. He lets her know they'll be coming soon. So she gets her friends, her bridesmaids together, and they wait in her parents' house. And when the bridegroom and his groomsmen arrive, the whole party processes through the town to the home that the bridegroom has prepared. They do it at night so that everyone in the town can participate. You know, nobody's out in the fields. Nobody's, nobody's doing any work. Everybody's there. And they have these posts, these torches, you know, cloth with oil, up on a pole that they light so that they can process through the town. And the bridesmaids are the ones carrying them. And they get to the house, they, the whole wedding party goes in, and they shut the door. And then they celebrate, and it goes into the night. And it goes into the next day, and it goes longer, because this has been a year coming. We are ready. We are ready to party. We are ready to celebrate. And they party like royalty, and they eat like kings. And at the end, the wedding party leaves, and the husband and wife begin their lives together. And it's the third part of the wedding that Jesus is talking about in this passage. The procession, the highlight of everyone's social calendar, the days-long celebration of the wedding party. It was like a coronation. The king and queen were here. And that's how it's supposed to happen. And every one of Jesus' hearers would know, well, that's how it's supposed to happen. And the fact that it didn't go as planned, that half the bridesmaids, the foolish virgins, were unprepared, 
would have been a social scandal they might never live down. All ten were there waiting for the bridegroom. All ten had the lamps for the procession. And the bridegroom's delay even would have been expected. That culture was not enslaved to the wristwatch and the clock. You got there when you got there. And even in our world, weddings rarely start exactly on time anyway. So they should have been ready. It should not have caught them by surprise. But five were foolish. They didn't prepare. And when they tried to enter the party late, all they received from the bridegroom was a quick word. I'm sorry, I don't know you. Never met you in my life. Go away. We're having a party. And Jesus now takes this parable home to us because he's warned his disciples. They asked for signs, and he'd given them. He says, when you see these things happening, you know that the Son of Man will be returning soon. But that doesn't mean that we can rest easy because we know he's coming. Earlier in this same section, he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And later, therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And verse 13 of our text, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And that's the heart of the parable. Be ready for Jesus to come back. There's no hidden meaning or mystical allegory here, although many have tried over the centuries to find one, and they have torn this poor passage to ribbons just looking for things that aren't there. Jesus is saying something very plain, and he's using something very normal. And what he says is plain and clear, but the remarkable thing, what's jarring, is who he says it to. Because he's not warning the world here. He's not saying to the general masses, hey, here I am, get ready. He's warning his disciples. These guys who have walked with him for three years, if anybody should be ready, it should be them. But Jesus still warns them. Because the problematic people in this parable are not strangers, but wedding guests. Guests of honor. The virgins all had to be friends of the bridegroom and the bride. They were all invited. They accepted. They were excited for this wedding. They were excited for the bridegroom to come take his bride. And they all had their torches ready to fulfill what was their part in the procession. Jesus isn't warning strangers. He's warning his church, which is us. It's everybody that I see before me. Me. You may be friendly towards Christ and his bride, the church. You may be accepted as invitation and you're here now. You may have enjoyed the music this morning. You maybe even are looking forward to his return. You may have all the outward signs of readiness, just like the foolish virgins had. But when they heard, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him, they were not ready. When you hear, as our passage we read today, when the trump sounds the voice of an archangel, will you be ready? Or will you be shut out of the feast? 
But, you know, who am I to ask this, to accuse you of being unprepared for Jesus, or to suggest that some of you, or maybe even many of you, will not enter into the wedding feast of heaven and earth? I'm no one. I am a sinner, a dead man walking. In my words, plug your ears. But I'm telling you that it is Jesus who is making these statements. Will you scoff at his warning? Will you wait until he returns to decide to get ready? Jesus does not want you to fall asleep in false security. The foolish virgins had plenty of time to prepare, but they waited until it was too late. The wise were already prepared. They could rest knowing they were ready. Jesus wants you to rest and to be at peace, but only if you're ready for him. But if you're not prepared, he will shake you out of your slumber. And he's not joking around. Listen to just some of his warnings. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all evil, all causes of sin, and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus talks about hell a lot. But it's not because he's some fire and brimstone preacher or some strict disciplinarian trying to scare you. It's because his mission was to keep us from it. Listen to what he and his apostles testify. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He's not trying to scare you into good behavior. He's trying to save you. You are peacefully asleep in your bed while the house burns around you. But Jesus is the fireman who runs into the burning building to wake you up and carry you out before you die. I said earlier, Jesus wants you to rest and be at peace, but only if you're ready for him. How do you get ready for him? By being ready in him. As soon as Jesus is done teaching here, he said to his disciples, Matthew chapter 26, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. 
There's three chapters left in Matthew's gospel, but it's not filled with more sermons or discourses. It's filled with how Jesus fulfilled his purpose to save his people. Judas prepares to betray Jesus to death. Jesus prepares to die. A woman anoints him with oil to prepare me for burial, he says. He eats the old covenant meal, the Passover, with his disciples, and he institutes the new, saying, this bread is my body broken for you. This wine, this cup is my blood shed for you. He is betrayed and mocked and bound and beaten. The scribes and the Pharisees hold a kangaroo court to unjustly condemn him to death. The authorities rough him up and shuffle him around. The people he came to save can only say, we hate this man. Crucify him. We'd rather have that murderer Barabbas. Pilate, the governor, the guardian of justice, caves in to all of these demands. Jesus, now with his back already whipped to shreds, blood and bone and muscle exposed, is forced to carry his cross, this beam of wood, up the long road to the place of his death. And the soldiers stretch him out and put nails right through his hands and his feet. And they lift him up to die as a spectacle and a shame. And for six hours, he's heaving there, breathing and dying. Pulling himself up for each breath, tearing open the flesh on his back again. Only being supported by these nails that are pierced through him. But all those wounds are nothing. Because his father, his loving heavenly father, is pouring hell out on Jesus. And why? Because Jesus is holding his people's sin. And under the weight of all that misery, he remains until at last he can say, It is finished. He's dead. Wrapped in grave clothes and laid in a tomb. No one ever suffered as this man. Physical torture, social rejection, mental anguish, and hell itself. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. 
See, I have told you. And they did see him, for he is indeed risen, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler of all creation. He was raised up and ascended on high to his father, and he is seated at his right hand on the throne of the universe. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. The bridegroom has made his promises to his bride. Jesus went to prepare a place for us. And when he's ready, he will return. Will you be ready? Will you join him to celebrate in his house? Or will you be like the foolish virgins who thought they had more time and who didn't have what was needed to enter? They didn't have any oil but they could have bought it very easily. It was right within their grasp, but they didn't take it. You've probably seen a scene in a movie, someone stranded in the desert, and maybe they have a canteen full of water, and they're trying to ration it out so they only take sips of it thinking, well, I need water tomorrow too, so I better only drink some of it today. But they're dying of thirst. And that water tomorrow is not going to do them any good because they're going to be dead tonight. Water in the desert is precious, but only if you drink it. If you leave it in the bottle, it's going to do you no good and you'll die. You can't admire Jesus from afar. You can't just think, yes, I agree, this is good. On Judgment Day, it will not matter how much you liked him. It will not matter how much you agreed with him. It will not matter how well you thought of him. What will matter is whether you ate his flesh and drank his blood. What will matter is if you trust him as your life. Trust him not like a bank account, but like a parachute. When you're jumping out of a plane that's going to crash into the mountainside, and you look at this parachute and you think, either this thing works or I'm dead. Only Jesus, nothing else, no one else. Not not just a, yes, I agree with that. That's not enough. You need to hold on to him for dear life. And if anything tries to get in between you and him, it's gone. Your sins or even your good deeds, you let them both go. You say, I'm not going to go after these and I'm not going to trust in those because they're both trying to get me away from Jesus. You need to hold on to him for dear life. Are you ready? He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.